Hello, hello, and welcome to Rich Text. I'm Claire. I'm Emma. And we are back yet again to talk about the motherhood divide uh, that looms like a chasm between the two of us and so many other women our age. Um, We got so many wonderful messages about our our previous episode about motherhood and non-motherhood, and we were so touched and uh, loved so much hearing about everyone else's experiences and their thoughts. And if we haven't gotten to your emails yet, (laughs) I'm sorry, we will respond to all of them. Um, It was a lot to go through. And of course, we always want to make sure that we respond to every message in a way that that feels authentic and not not too rushed. But thank you so much to everyone who reached out to us. It really, really meant the world. It really did. And um, we definitely want to make this a series. We appreciated hearing from from many of you about topics you would like to hear discussed and and that you think maybe we didn't give enough uh, perspective on. Um, topics like, you know, women who have always known they want to be child-free, women who are unpartnered, women who are also taking care of elderly parents, and like so much more. There's so much. That's even only a fraction of it. And some of those things, you know, we don't have direct experience on. So we're going to be trying to look for guests as well. And we're excited to dig more into all of this. Some of these episodes will probably be public. Some will be subscriber-only Um, today, this is subscriber only, uh, for now, but, um, we're looking forward to just continuing this conversation and into all the many different rabbit holes that we can go into. Yeah. It's such, such a rich area, um, and really is so personally resonant for the two of us. So I think it's been incredibly fulfilling to see that there are so many other people that want to kind of see these conversations happen. Um, and so we're really, really excited to be able to podcast about something like this that is so personal. Um, and yeah, please continue to send us feedback as we go. And we are really excited to make this a really rich series. Yeah. And, uh, today we have I would say maybe a a topic on the more frivolous end, which is fun too, (laughs) which is fun. This was actually going to be the second half of last week's episode. And then our first topic went so long that I was frantically in the dock, like maybe we should save this. (laughs) Um, So we're going to be talking about fashion and specifically we're going to be talking uh, about the nap dress and mommy and me dressing and Anne Helen Peterson's uh, essay, uh, historical deep dive on the nap dress and Mobby and Need dresses. And um, I well, have we'll so many thoughts to that. We'll this. add a link yeah. to that essay so that you guys can see it for reference. It was published on her newsletter, um, Culture Study. So we will, we both had a very strong reaction to this essay, even though we also really enjoyed and were fascinated by a lot of parts of it. So I think it's going to be like a very, um, rich, a rich text, if you will, to dive into. Oh God. But we're going to have to start banning those words (laughs) from the podcast. Uh, so, um, unpacking the nap dress, uh, is an investigation into, um, a fashion item that Emma and I have both been 
big fans of uh, sort of the Hill House nap dress, uh, which um, has taken the world by storm, or at least our our sort of segment of it, our milieu, and the 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 universe of fashion around it, which is like um, sort of nostalgic, romantic dresses for millennial women. Um, they're maternity friendly. Often they come with matching mother and daughter frocks uh, so that women can dress their daughters up like them. And uh, she does uh, a deep dive kind of tying this back to previous fashion trends um, that shared that sort of pastoral romanticism in, in women's fashion that shared that desire for women and their daughters to match each other and to sort of um, visually signify the passing of femininity from mother to child. And um, she talks about Laura Ashley dresses, uh, blast Which, from the past. Yeah. Extremely present um, for, for our, from our childhood. I mean, we both were born in the late eighties. And so that was really like the heyday of Laura Ashley um, and continued to be very big into, into the nineties. So I feel like we sort of um, just absorbed the Laura Ashley uh, aesthetic by virtue of like growing up around it. Well, that's interesting because the Laura Ashley aesthetic is something that I mostly feel like I missed. It wasn't something that my mom was into or that I really saw around me. And maybe that's because I grew up in Indiana and not like maybe the most like fashion status obsessed setting. My mom mostly wore like jeans and turtlenecks <laughs> and fleeces. And so did we never my mom. matched. I don't even know if we actually ever had these dresses. I just remember them like being around and knowing about them. And I wonder if this is I because knew the name, but I think I had very little grasp of even what they were. It was something people very, talked about. We had a very close family friend that, um, in Philly that owned a store. And I like, maybe that's why my, my memory is tied to just that. Like she would go and meet with like buyers, like for, for their store. And there was a lot of like Laura Ashley, just sort of like in the ether at that point. And I remember mommy and me dressing being a thing. I actually am not sure. I can't remember if my mom and I ever had matching Laura Ashley dresses, but I just remember it being like a thing along with like Hannah Anderson. Like those are just like brand names that stick out to me. Yeah. It's definitely a brand name I'm familiar with. And if I were to envision it, uh, it's a very specific, like the enormous white collar, puffy sleeve sort of dropped waist aesthetic, like not something that I think of as being particularly flattering. I, I never really say, wanted not a dress fl- like not that. Flattering. <laughs> not flattering. Didn't seem comfortable to wear. Um, but Laura Ashley was created by a woman named Laura Ashley as, as Anne Helen Peterson digs into who was a Welsh woman who started making these sort of retro inspired, like Victorian inspired home goods and linens and, and garments 
in the 1950s and 60s. And by like the 70s and 80s, they were becoming very popular. Um, they signified this, this uh, sort of uh, nostalgia for a simpler time, you know, not hot nights out in the city, but, you know, a clean scrubbed, like home on the farm sort of vibe in a more upscale <laughs> version. And this ended up becoming very popular in the US as well. And matching mommy and daughter outfits were a part of their branding as were, you know, like just sort of pushing a, a matronly sort of ideal as opposed to like, you know, a, a nubile, like young sex goddess sort of vibe. Um, there's a quote yeah. where she says like, oh, some women think that her dresses make them look pregnant. And she's like, well, what's nicer than being pregnant? You know, that's, that's the Laura Ashley yeah, I a lot of things, it, by the way, like, when you look at the advertisements and the garments, like I, I inherently always sort of knew like this, these are things that sort of signal whiteness, signal affluence, signal sort of traditional femininity and domesticity, but I didn't know. And, and something that Anne Helen does really well is sort of like make explicit in the history, um, how much that was baked into what Laura Ashley wanted these garments to do is to sort of push this very traditional heteronormative um view of what what women should be what femininity mm. should be and that wasn't something that i was aware of like there's a very explicit conservative political view baked into this fashion brand yeah i definitely did not realize that um but it, it makes sense. It tracks. (laughs) And yeah, she, Laura Ashley was honest about that at various points that she was not interested in feminism, that she was interested in women being, you know, mothers and raising the next generation and being in the domestic sphere. And, um, and so Anne Helen sort of tracks the way that, that this, this style, this interest in both, the, the matching outfits and the fact that these outfits are sort of romantic pastoral um, outfits are, are both uh, are trends that go hand in hand and that they are a reaction to uh, challenging times that, that they are um, a way of reasserting quote, the strength of both the nation and the domestic sphere. Um, Again, sort of like the atomization of, you know, modern culture and women going into the workforce or, um, you know, all these modern changes that are rending our social fabric. And uh, so that leaves us with, you know, what does a nap dress or a matching mother and daughter dress signal? Like, what is it saying when you wear like a really like a frilly gown uh and maybe your daughter is wearing a matching one and i think the piece points in a few directions like whiteness definitely these have historically been you know they're drawn from like a a european a a white anglo-european ideal in history and they have traditionally been like marketed towards and geared towards white women 
uh, affluence. Um, these outfits aren't cheap. They're not. They're cheap. not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that she points out the Laura Ashley ones were actually massively uh, marked up for the U.S. market in order to capitalize on the sense that they were signifiers of wealth rather than just like a dress in a certain style. It was important that people know that they were costly. Um, and yeah, just traditional femininity uh, of the of the white middle upper class variety, uh, domesticity, the, the value of women as homemakers. Um, so why is this happening now, right, is the question. I mean, I, I think the pandemic is probably a big reason, a big one, a big one. You know, (laughs) I, I, I think that, um, specifically with the, the Hill house nap dress, it was something that they had released initially, I believe in 2019. And it like, didn't take off in a crate in any sort of crazy way. Like Hill house was initially founded with, um, like bedding and, like bath goods as, as kind of the center of his, its business model. And then the pandemic happened and everyone was forced into their homes. At least people who are not um, essential workers were sort of forced into the domestic sphere, even if that was, had not been uh, previously where they were spending the majority of their times. Like we, we are prime examples of that. Both of us used to go to an office every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the pandemic happened and we literally haven't gone into an office for work since. Yeah. And may never again. And may never again. the state of the economy. I mean, but that's a really massive shift. And sure, now um, people are starting to go back to the office. More people will in, in the fall. But for the last year and a half, people have been sort of relegated to their homes. Yeah. And I think, you know, we see a lot of white middle tupper class moms and non-moms, honestly, any, any women who have been in the situation, you're suddenly pushed into a setting that, that perhaps you did not want to define your life, that you had career ambitions, you had a life, you had a, a hectic social calendar and suddenly you're at home all the time where previous generations of women like you were sort of confined and restricted. Um, and it makes sense to me that, that there is an urge to find value and, and beauty and romance in that by trying on a romantic version of that identity of being like, all right, I'm stuck at home, but what's one nice thing that there was when women were stuck in, in the home, the way that I am now, they had beautiful floaty dresses, you know, and they made home baked bread. And so you try on those bits of, of a past world that you're nostalgic for without ever having experienced it yourself. Um, because you're not living the, the more modern life that you thought you would be living that you had like aspired to. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I I think about the first few months spent in quarantine and how much of a struggle it was for me to fill the time in ways that didn't make me just feel 
trapped and miserable and useless. And I mm. think that, you know, I started baking a lot. I made so many loaf cakes. I started like my, my boyfriend would walk from his apartment in the city <laughs> into Brooklyn, pick up like fish at a fish place and then like walk it to my house. And we would make like, oh. elaborate meals because we were like, okay, well, what do you do again? What do you do when you're trapped in the domestic sphere? We yeah. can learn to cook. Uh, mm -hmm. we can, and, and then I think for, for women specifically, you know, we are always contending with an element of our value being wrapped up in our appearance. Mm -hmm. And obviously that is a really negative thing in a lot of ways, but I also think that I started to, after a while, like it was wonderful in a sense to be able to just like wear loungewear all the time. Like it was very comfortable. I was like, no restrictive waistband. Liberating. This is great. It's very liberating. On the other hand, it was really, it became really hard for me to differentiate, you know, sleep from wake. Like, like I was, it, it all seemed to blend together. There were so few markers of time passing and that started to feel really depressing. Like you don't have mm -hmm. the release of taking off your bra if you never put one on. Right. Not that I've There's really worn a bra in the last like year and a half, but, <laughs> but that's just an example, you know, like if you don't have any sort of markers, um, yeah. and I think one of the markers that, that I sort of leaned into at the beginning, which I soon realized wasn't really healthy or sustainable was like, I started like drinking a beer, having a glass of wine every night after the work oh, yeah. ended. Yeah. And I was drinking definitely. alone for the first time in my life, really, because I was like, well, again, I needed a marker. And so I think fashion can, can also serve that purpose. Yeah. I, and the loss of fashion for the outside world, there's a beauty in that because I think for a lot of women, there's an opportunity to experience life as a subject rather than an object Yeah, for, for a period of time to like take that out of the equation. But at the same time, you're losing a ritual that, that gave rhythm to your day and that gave you structure and contrast allows us to really experience things like taking your bra off or coming in from a cold day into a, a warm home, like that contrast is what makes you really sense and feel and appreciate the comfort you're experiencing. Right. The pleasure lies in the contrast to an extent. Right. And, and so there, there's now this, there, there quickly became this renegotiation of like, how can we find these kinds of contrasts and structures without just like putting bras on and full faces of makeup every morning and then sitting at our desk in the same room where we're going to sleep. Like what's something else we can do to make this day feel special and, and elevated. And also like, I do think it's really clear from how this all played out that like women, they, they were, they're being like pushed back into the home in a lot of cases, a certain class of women, but also like they're prepared. They have a toolkit for being at home in the in a way that a lot of men don't like, you don't see this happening with men because there are no like historical reference for men for being confined to the home in this, in the same way. Like you didn't see men being like, ah, oh, well, like I'm just going to be like, 
the men of yore were, you know, how they would stay at home in their ruffle collared shirts and lounge about, you know, but I saw so many women last summer saying like, oh, this is like going to be my rest cure era. You know, I'm going to be like a Victorian consumptive. Like there are these narratives of women being kept at home in some sort of romanticized um, but restricted state and, and having to to dwell in that, to like exist in that and find ways of being productive or beautiful or creating value of some sort in that setting. And for men, it literally is just like, I don't know, like sweat (laughs) shorts, sweat shorts. And uh, when can I go back to the office? Like there's just no nostalgic past for them to reach. You just drink a lot of whiskey, Claire. (laughs) Whiskey on the rocks. (laughs) I mean, I would understand that reaction. (laughs) But like, yeah, it's the the past that is being reached back to is one of women who are in this stay at home class. They were moms. They were um, domestics. And, uh, you know, now we, we see this generation of women who some are moms, some are not, some really expected to define their lives around their careers, some expected to be stay-at-home moms, but regardless, we're all having to cling to that outdated identity as a way of like making sense of this new setting we're in. Yeah, no, I think that that's accurate. And I think that the nap dress thus sort of like popped up in this perfect way where it offered us, at least for me, it offered an option that was, that felt elevated. As you said, it felt different than, you know, my oversized t-shirt that I wore to sleep or the, the leggings that I wore, you know, to potentially do an at-home workout and then just like stayed in them all day and put the same ones on the next day. Cause time didn't matter. Um, and And at the same time, it wasn't a restrictive garment. It was, it's a very um, comfortable garment. And I find the nap dress to be very flattering. It sort of cinches in at the waist and sort of falls very gracefully over your hips and stomach. We are talking about the Ellie now. Sorry. Yes. We're talking about the Ellie, the the original, (laughs) the original style of nap dress. Um, And it has the, the top is all smocking. So if, you know, you find your body perhaps changing or (laughs) softening, uh, as, as I did during quarantine, you know, it's very, it remains flattering and it is adaptable to your body changing, Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in any way, like if your body gets slightly smaller or slightly bigger, like it will move with you. And I think that for me, that was, that was very, very appealing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got that nostalgia appeal. It's got the comfort appeal. Like, of course it took off. I don't think that we should be surprised that most women of the, of the sort who are, you know, forced home from office jobs, Right. We're, and obviously we're like, going to we, be content to wear sweatpants right. all year. And <laughs> like, we acknowledge that again, this is a specific, you know, socioeconomic yeah. class of women identifying people who were confined to the home. You know, this is not applicable to 
every single woman identifying person in the country. Um, so I want to make, make it clear that like, we're focusing our observations on that specific, um, set of women. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it is, uh, it is obviously a way of signaling class and that's like kind of an uncomfortable thing to, admit as someone who wears them but like that's the reality of of a lot of fashion and the now dress is certainly no different that like you're marking yourself as the member of a certain class that maybe can stay at home um that can sort of waft around the apartment even if it's not what you would have chosen to do um it's a very clear marker of of what what socioeconomic class you you belong to and um i think that that's true of of moms and non-moms alike but what i thought was sort of surprising to me about the framing of the piece is that she really frames the nap dress as like a, a millennial mom phenomenon and maybe that surprised me emma because you are the preeminent nap dress influencer that i know and you're not a mom. Yeah. I mean, I, I only think, know about it because of you. I mean, maybe I would have heard of it by now, but I think I was surprised by that too, because I don't mm-hmm. think I initially heard about these garments from mothers or it didn't strike me as like even specifically a garment tailored only to moms or even primarily to moms. Although I always knew that it was made to be, um, maternity friendly, to be nursing friendly. But like, I never thought of it as like, Oh, I found a mom trend and I also like it. (laughs) So I found that framing to be really interesting, especially because so much of her analysis is focused on the mommy and me element and Mm -hmm. the smaller nap dresses are very new. Like it, you know, this really took off without (laughs) any of the mommy and me stuff. I think it's in the last couple months that they introduced um, matching. Yeah, the same with, she also talks about Christy Dawn, which is a brand that I have enjoyed lusting over, but I don't actually own any Christy Dawn. But same, we just stare at their website. <laughs> I know that they have recently had a, a, a mommy and me sort of push, but I don't remember that being a big part of their, of their branding early on. It, I don't and think it was. Honestly, a lot of their dresses don't seem that maternity or nursing friendly to me. Um, but, but this is the, the sort of frame is, is Anne Helen is sort of like, I, I know about these dresses because Instagram thinks I have a daughter because I was around friends with, with children. And now they're trying to sell me these dresses. And to me, I didn't really see that as a divide between moms and non-moms because the things that you're describing about the dress, uh, Emma, are I think universal and appeal to a lot of women our age in our class, which is that the comfort that it's can appear glamorous and flattering without being constrictive, without requiring our body to stay a specific shape. And those are like exactly the things that make it maternity friendly, but anyone with a changing body, you know, whether it's because of a pregnancy or not, benefits from a garment that is not like ruthlessly structured. Right. I think this is sort of where I started to like bristle a little bit at the piece because it felt like she, there are these like overarching 
commonalities in terms of like class signifiers and such. And like that, um, again, like nostalgia for a bygone era, um, aesthetically that are certainly present in both like the Laura Ashley and, and the, the nap dress and Christy Dawn vibe. Um, but I, it did feel like she was drawing a little bit of a straight line that doesn't quite work for me. Um, and Mm -hmm. I think that the context is also very different. Like the Reagan era yuppie conservative streak in which the, the Laura Ashley kind of came up in is very different than a pandemic, which operated as this interesting sort of equalizer again, at least for women of a certain milieu, um, moms and non-moms like you wrote a really beautiful essay, Claire, um, when the pandemic first started about, cause you were on maternity leave when mm-hmm. we um, first got the stay at home orders and you wrote a really great piece on, I believe your first mother's day um, for HuffPost about the way that it felt to you. Like the world had sort of joined you in that kind of cloistered maternity leave mode. And I think that that is a really apt observation. Like mm-hmm. it was this thing that whether you had a small child or not, certainly your experience of quarantine was vastly different depending on whether, you know, you were contending with childcare, but we were all confined to the domestic sphere in that, in that way. And so I think Mm -hmm. in terms of fashion, there, there was a lot of um, sort of equality (laughs) between parents and and non-parents in terms of their like desired garment, if you were um, quarantining at home. Right. There were similar, similar needs. And I think, yeah, historically there's been uh, in recent history, this, this pretty stark divide, I think between mom fashion and non-mom fashion. Um, You know, it's like, you're, you're not a mom, you're wearing like blouses and impractical fabrics that like have high necks and, you know, tailored pants or whatever. (laughs) I'm describing normal clothes. Um, I have so many clothes that like, I still can't wear because I'm nursing so many of my favorite clothes. um, I can't wear because I can't lift a dress all the way up every time (laughs) I want to nurse. No, the, the collar doesn't tug down. There's no buttons. A lot of my favorite clothes look like that. They're not available to me anymore. Um, They're also maybe not that comfortable around the parts of my body that have changed. And they especially weren't when I was pregnant and postpartum. And I think the way that this has in recent years been kind of resolved is like women who don't have kids, you know, they're most of fashion is for them. And it is not designed with their practical needs in mind. And it is designed for them to conform their bodies to in order to show the the fashion off. And that's their work. Their work as women is to make their bodies such that clothes look good on them. And if you're a mom, then you can go to like motherhood maternity or later you can go to like Talbots or whatever. And you can get clothes that have plenty of pockets and that are super stretchy or tent shaped. And then you don't, you you know what I mean? It's like, right. Well, there's a whole world of fashion. And I think that it specifically plays into this um, larger thing that women contend with, which is that 
we are meant to, again, do the work to conform our, our bodies so that they look, you know, good specifically, probably to the heterosexual male gaze, um, or just other specific ideals and, and that clothes present well on them, which usually means, uh, you know, beating your body into submission and thinness. And Mm -hmm. then if you, and and your ultimate uh, purpose still is meant to be, you know, reproducing, right. That is still sort of like an overarching thing. And so once you do that, once you fulfill that purpose, well, now you're an invisible, you're no longer really that useful as an object. So you can then just like drape your body in something that's really unflattering. And like, you don't mind, you don't care about being a fashion palette. You don't need to like have that sort of fun experimentation because you're, you're no longer again, that like useful object and you can just fade into obscurity. Exactly. And as long as you're at home and or nursing, like if, as long as you are engaged in like new motherhood or stay at home motherhood, you are in the domestic space. And so why not wake up every morning, pull on leggings with hip pockets and like an oversized button down with your loose t-shirt. And there's nothing wrong with that outfit. I've worn it a bunch of times. It's no, can be comfortable, no, no, no. but the idea is that that is, that is mom fashion. It is extremely practical. It's extremely comfortable. It's not meant to be seen because you're at home. It's meant to accommodate with stretchy fabrics. You're changing body and nursing. And if you're, if you're not a mom, or if you have like re-entered the world as a working mom, then you, the rest of fashion is for you. And what I think is interesting about these snap dresses is that they're actually trying to like overlap that they're trying to say like, you know, we see this with Christy Dawn and with Hill House that they're saying these aren't maternity garments, but they are maternity friendly. Like if you, get this dress as a single woman who is childless. And then in four years you get pregnant, you're going to be able to wear this dress and it's going to be appropriate for all of those parts of your life. And I found myself being like, why is this so like uncommon? Like why, why do I so rarely find garments that are suitable for all stages of like normal life processes that women's bodies go through. Uh, And why would I have to buy a whole new outfit every time I like gain 10 pounds, even (laughs) right pregnancy or not? Like, why is it so unforgiving? And I, so I love that. And I think that at certain points, intentionally or not, I'm really not sure. I think that she frames this in, in her essay and Helen as sort of like insidious like, you know, yeah. making beautiful clothes that work for nursing and maternity is like pushing a natalist agenda in some like regressive way. Um, like in one passage, she's drawing parallels between Laura Ashley's sort of aspirational conservative fashion to Christy Dawn, who is like a very intentionally sustainable and socially conscious designer. Um, descri- she describes it as a more conservative quote, uh, boho look. And the quote is, some women complained that Laura Ashley's designs made them look pregnant. Ashley's response, ah, but what's nicer than being pregnant? Christy Dawn has curated a collection of loose and flowing fits with baby bumps and nursing in mind. So why is that bad? Like, why, like, (laughs) that seems actually great to me. Like, I, I, I don't really understand the suspicion of this, I guess. Like, the idea that if there is mainstream beautiful fashion that 
women can wear while they're pregnant or not. Is that forcing women to get pregnant? Is that reactionary? Like is including women who are or are becoming moms in the fashion arena, is that insidious or bad? I mean, and I don't think it is. And maybe I'm bristling in a way that like there is perhaps like a defensiveness for me built into this because these are clothes that I really enjoy. And I find to be like very flattering to my body, which has never been pregnant. And I don't know if I ever will be pregnant, Um, but I still find them flattering and beautiful. And I think it's like also just like a cool thing that I could recommend a thing that I love to you. And I could also be like, Claire, this would is also going to be like really practically useful to you um, because you're yeah. still nursing. Like I remember us having that conversation when you were like, maybe I will buy my first nap dress. And I felt really excited to be able to recommend something to you that like, not only I, that I believed would be flattering to both of our bodies, but that would like be practical for you. Right. It was that there, we could have something in common again. And yeah. like, I had felt really not the, you know, there are always going to be differences, right? Like you can definitely pull off colors that I can't yada, yada, but sure. like to have an overlap, like made me feel like I was part of the world that the rest of adult women were in for a while after like months of literally just shopping at a store called motherhood maternity. And like, that was my option. And to feel like I could be included, not like privileged, not like if everyone else wants to try these maternity dresses, like that's all we have. Good luck to the rest of you. It really was like, I am included. Emma's included. This works for all of us. And I don't understand I, and I may be overreading her tone here for sure. I mean, that's um, how I read it too, though, be- because again, I thought I felt she was drawing a pretty straight line from the like fundamental pro-natalist, fundamentally extremely conservative politics behind Laura Ashley directly to these newer brands right. that, it's don't, like there's- that don't have that conservatism at least explicitly baked into them. Sure. Maybe they are aping an aesthetic that signals some of those things. And I'm like open to critique of that. And I, I also don't think that like, this should be the only overarching aesthetic available to women, obviously, you know, I think that like, there are some women who clearly feel like very uncomfortable signaling this sort of like overt femininity. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that they should have to wear nap dresses, you know, like I want to make that very clear. Like there should be like a plethora of fashion options that span the, you know, entire, um, spectrum of, of gender expression available to women identifying people or femme identifying people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, (sighs) it's not for everyone and it doesn't need to be for everyone. Um, that's true of all kinds of fashion. Like, I don't think that there should no longer be tailored pants or structured blouses just because they're impractical for me right now. I absolutely think they should still exist, but it's like the minute that there is something available that is not that, that both moms and new moms and non-moms can all wear it's almost like they're trying to trick they're trying to trick you into being pregnant they're trying to make you think that being pregnant is cool and I find this 
honestly, like if it like makes me super uncomfortable, like, can we not include pregnant or nursing women in things that are available and for all women, because it's, it's too conservative to even consider pregnant and nursing moms. Like it's too, it, it, it risks encouraging women to be pregnant by making pretty clothes that they can wear when they're pregnant. Um, it just, I don't quite understand the value in that for women as a whole. And also just like the horror at looking pregnant, I find really troubling. Like, I don't think that it's like, oh, what's nicer than being pregnant? Like you must want to be pregnant. Not every woman is going to want that. Sure. But I do feel that it plays into a different sort of feminine ideal to say, like, when you're pregnant, you look pregnant and you wear a huge tent over your giant belly. And when you're not pregnant, you have a wasp waist that is accentuated with tight fitted fashions that advertise that not only are you not pregnant and you are available <laughs> to be impregnated maybe in the future, um, not only does it advertise that you're not pregnant, but it advertises that you have controlled your body uh, into yeah, a certain I mean, thin ideal. And I think that maybe that is part of this for me too, because just the way my body is naturally shaped, even when I was at my thinnest, I have a stomach. My stomach just like yeah, me curves too. out in the front. Like that is just, that's how women's bodies are shaped. Like I really like a lot of, yeah, everyone. like a lot of women's bodies are just shaped that way. And yes, there are people who like are, you know, genetically naturally very thin or have flat stomachs. Like I have literally never had a flat stomach in the entirety of my life. And I was a pretty like skinny kid, you know, mm -hmm. that's just not how my body is shaped. There is no amount of controlling my body short of like some very invasive surgeries that would make it conform in that way. And so I think like, and, and yeah, there was always this specter of like, are you wearing something that's going to make you look pregnant? Are you going to like, and that mm. is the most horrifying thing is that someone might mistake you for being pregnant because that means you haven't controlled your body in the right ways. Right. Like being mistaken for pregnant is obviously on some level, just a way of, of learning or of being informed that you're not skinny enough. And if you're pregnant, it's allowable because it's a literal baby, but otherwise like the fear of looking pregnant is essentially just a fear of not looking thin enough. And I find this very, like, I remember when I was young in college, maybe I was once wearing like an empire wasted sundress with a ruffle at the bottom because of the ruffle, it kind of like poofed out all around and I remember my grandma, my beloved, very conservative grandma, um, who was always like absolutely terrified that we would like do something like get pregnant out of wedlock, grabbed my arm and like hissed at me, like whispered, like in my ear, that, that dress makes you look right. God. And I was like mortified. And also I was like, so what? Like, I'm, I'm not, if I were like, I guess we could have a conversation about it. Like, I guess like I'm, I'm 20, but like, <laughs> calm down. It's my body. I'm not pregnant. And like, why, do, why do you need to like, there, it was like, I had done something wrong. You know, I had done something wrong by wearing a dress that did not adequately showcase my, my tiny slender waist. And 
I feel like there's almost a hint of that here that like there's a risk in making dresses that can accommodate pregnancy bumps and that I don't think that there is. I think that there's there's something quite beautiful and liberating about everyone being able to drape their waist in as, as many protective layers of fabric as they want. Um, yeah, and I also wanted to briefly touch on this idea that because, and this is something that, that Anne Helen brings up that a nap dress or a Christy Dawn dress is a work dress because it accommodates pregnancy and nursing. It's something that a mom can wear at home. And I think domestic that that work, a domestic yeah, work dress. Yeah. I think that that's true. And so far as like pregnancy and nursing or work, um, and I do think they are, they're very hard. Um, but, you know, a commenter also points out that it's a bad work dress because it doesn't have pockets and they don't. <laughs> and you know what? There are great limitations uh, to the practicality of these dresses to me for that reason that the Hill House dresses. But I think that that is part of the appeal and it's part of the signaling that's going on, which is like, I'm working in the sense that I'm a mom, but I'm not actually shouldering the level of responsibility that would require me to wear a more practical item of clothing. Like I need to be able to pull out my boob to nurse my child, like a beautiful Madonna, but do I need <laughs> to have like a packet of wipes and a phone and like a pacifier in my pocket at all times as I'm, you know, running with them all over town, you know, there's, there are the impractical elements of the nap dress are, I think, what makes it feel for a mom like me kind of luxurious. It's a way of being like, I'm working, but like, how hard am I really working? You know, I'm, I'm mean, working, but I'm also I'm also being glamorous. Uh, not everything ab about my outfit is practical. And also, frankly, because of the way that these garments drape, like a, a pocket would weigh down the skirt. Oh, you couldn't it put wouldn't, a pocket in it. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Like I, and I think that they've like um, Nell, who who runs Hill House, has spoken about that. Like it is a design choice because the draping wouldn't work with it would weigh it down too much. Um, I also think like the the drape of the skirt is part of what makes me feel able to, like, I thought maybe I would lose, lose interest in the nap dresses once the world started opening up, but I've actually been wearing them a lot. Um, mm -hmm. cause again, they're just something that like, I don't have to worry about, like, does this still fit me properly? Is this restricting me? Am I going to be so aware of my body when I'm wearing it? And I think I, I wrote about this a bit in our chat post about, um, coming out of the pandemic fashion, but my mark of like a great outfit is always that I put it on and I feel so good at, in it that when I go to do whatever I'm going to do, I'm not thinking about my body and the garment mm -hmm. the whole time. You yeah. know, I'm not adjusting it. I'm not worried about like, oh, this is too tight. Oh, I'm starting to have like pain in certain places or, oh, I need to keep pulling at something or I need to keep checking myself out in the mirror. And the nice thing about a nap dress, like I wore it out to, um, a nice dinner with some girlfriends the other night on a really, really hot day. And I was like, it's light enough that it can withstand the humidity. I wore a black one. So it can absorb my sweat <laughs> still like I'm running around. I had to go to like a meeting before 
I was like, it's, you know, doesn't wrinkle or crease in a way that like, by the time I show up to dinner, I'm going to look like shit. And like all of those things are just really nice elements of any sort of thing you're going to wear. Yeah. It's like a big floaty light dress in summer groundbreaking, right? Like, (laughs) of course, of course it's a great thing to wear in the summer. Um, I think that, you know, the, the nap dress is, it just hits at that exact nexus of like luxury and practicality. And that is fundamentally what a lot of the appeal comes from. And I think that that can be true for a lot of women I know without kids, as well as, as ones with kids, I actually think maybe more so either really new moms or non-moms than moms who are a little older, because yeah, once, once you have kids running around, um, you start to need pockets. Like it's really hard not to have pockets. Like once you get Although past I, yeah, that I will stage say, where you're just lying there and they're nursing all the time. My, my old boss, um, who is, who has like slightly older kids, who's a little bit older than me. I remember she was like contemplating buying an app dress and she was like, am I too old for this? Like, I don't know. Is it going to make me look weird? And then she bought it and she's like obsessed with them now. She's like, wait, this is great. This works for my body. This works for like, I don't feel like a child in it. I don't feel infantilized in it. It's really flattering. And I've also noticed that Hill House has made an effort recently to feature more like significantly older models. Um, yeah, in their advertising, which I thought was interesting, sort of like signaling like this isn't, you know, only for people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, this, you can be a woman in her 60s and her 70s who who wears this dress and still feel great in it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of generations, I think we have to dig in a little bit to the question of cottage core. Um, I think this piece uh really takes pains to distinguish millennial moms and their motivations for, for dressing in a certain way, which are like resentment about having to be home with their kids, burnout over all the childcare, maybe still trying to work from home, some sort of narcissistic obsession with their children, um, a desire to like uphold family values in some, uh, nostalgic form, um, for, uh, you know, she tries to distinguish them from the idea of cottage core, which she identifies as kind of a Gen Z phenomenon um, that is like cool and transgressive that you find on newer social media platforms like TikTok. And, you know, these Gen Zers, she writes, are nostalgic for a screenless past, but they're also yearning for a world and life less defined by productivity and work ethic. If millennials are, according to one particularly perceptive Gen Zer, obsessed with job security and moaning about the ways they've been fucked over, Gen Zers say, fuck it, we'll create an aesthetic alternative. As one cottagecore enthusiast told the New York Times, cottagecore is all about finally feeling comfortable and at peace, even if that peace is fake. And then she says, the nap dress and the greater popularity of the Laura Ashley aesthetic is doing something slightly different, whereas the performance of cottagecore is, at least in part, about finding community with like-minded others apart from the home. The nap dress and mommy and me dresses more broadly look inward. The primary connection is the familial one. The kids' dresses effectively create an echo of the self, even when one's understanding of what the self is uh, becomes unstable. They don't say fuck it. They say maybe this will finally make it work. Millennials don't give up. They try harder. What did this 
what did you think about this division she's trying to draw here? I'm sorry. I thought it was kind of bullshit. (laughs) Like I just, I I was just like, tell me what you really think. Again, I felt like it was reaching. Like, I think there are things in here that are very perceptive. Like, I think there is an element of like millennial um, mindset that is obsessed with hustle and is, you know, as she says, like they don't give up, they try harder. I I think that is like an astute um, observation about certain aspects of like, you know, the way that millennials have kind of been socialized or have dealt with the fact that we haven't as a generation had a lot of financial and, and job security. I do think it's weird to like paint millennials as obsessed with job security. I'm like obsessed because we're all losing our jobs. Like both of us were laid off during a global pandemic and have had to really scramble to make sure that we can continue to make a living and have had to like turn towards, I don't know, being an individual creator. I I just thought that was sort of like, yeah, I always find eh. it a little weird to talk about generations in this sort of moralistic way. Yeah. They're discrete and moralistic as if one is better than the other, because the thing that separates them is that they're reacting to different contexts. It's not like, right we made a generation of people who are morally better somehow all at the same time. How did that happen? It's <laughs> such a crazy coincidence. Um, but at, so I do think that millennials, you know, are reacting to the fact that they, they came into a job market at a very precarious time, but it did seem like there were places to scrabble and make it work. And now right. Gen Z is coming into a world like, that feels like is, it's fully on fire. It's really like, broken. It's the hustling very, it's didn't obvious. work. Yeah. And it makes sense that there would be different broad reactions to that. But I think that it is a mistake to look at that and say, millennial moms cannot be having the same reaction as a Gen Zer at a different point in their life. There's no way that a millennial mom is, is looking at For her community. life and saying, I want community. I want uh, a, a new aesthetic alternative to this hustle life I've been living. I want to comfort make and a space peace. of comfort and peace. Like, I that wanna... seems like a thing that most human beings probably desire. Yeah. Like that's I a think... very human desire to want comfort and peace. Even if quote, even if that, like, if that piece is fake, because we're all just trying to fucking survive, uh, and not be miserable in that survival. Yeah. And I think a lot of millennials that I know, millennial women, especially, and millennial moms, especially, are looking at their lives and saying, like, I was told to be ambitious. I tried to fulfill that. I was told to hustle. I tried to fulfill that. It's not making me happy. I wish I had a life that was built around different values. I wish I had uh, a life that was built around community, peace and community and, and, and a balanced life that included, you know, baking bread and that included having children, maybe in, in the case of moms and being able to devote time to them that included, you know, being able to, to disconnect from this thing we've been immersed in since we were children. And that also doesn't necessarily mean like hearkening back to like women are only in the home and doing all the domestic labor and like are, I don't know, like it doesn't have to be like a totally um, conservative reactionary. Right. Well, there's the idea that like, if you're, if you're enacting any of this through having children, what you're doing 
is different and suspect than if you're enacting it by being a 23 year old who's on TikTok, you know, posting the bread you've baked in a ruffly gown. You know, it's it's different and it's worse because you are having a child at the same time. <laughs> and also <laughs> and you're I, a, you're a striver who mm-hmm. will is always will always be addicted to hustle. Um yeah. Rather than being someone who like was told that this was the answer to the precarity and now that we've, you know, as elder millennials um, have been in the workforce for more than a decade are like realizing the pitfalls of that. Like, I think a lot of millennials have tried to renegotiate um, perhaps the worldviews that we entered the, the job market with because yeah. we have seen it not work. And therein lies the quote obsession with job security. It's because we've had these experiences. And as you said, we are reacting to them. Yeah. And you know what? Who can blame us? Gen Zers. Yes. Younger generations can always blame us. And that's understandable. But yeah, I, I think that what is actually in my view or in my, what I feel at least is that I think a lot of millennial women in different ways really experienced the pandemic as a revelation about the ways that that community is important to their lives and that about the ways yeah. that that hustle culture has failed them and is not the right way to structure their lives and so I think you see a lot of moms being like it's not sufficient it, it's important but not sufficient to have access to paid childcare. like it's it's so difficult to raise children and live a life as a totally isolated unit. You need community, you need balance. And then you see a lot of millennials who don't have kids saying like, well, you had your family. I was alone. I was alone through this whole thing. And my community was my, my family structures were not respected by the way that lockdowns were imposed the way that we were guided to behave when I went home, I was just with myself or with maybe a roommate or a partner. And, you know, I think that that those are maybe different experiences, but I think the result among a lot of us has been like that community between all of us, between our households is so important and having the time to foster that and, that's what we missed. Yeah. Like, and that is something that, yeah. Talking to my friends who were single in this partnered without kids have kids like that was the common thread is this like missing of that community. And maybe there was also like some useful thinking about like, what did I push myself to do beforehand that I want to give up? And I want to like streamline some of the, you know, social engagements that I felt compelled to do before, but there was still like a, a missing of community structures and a real thought that like, yeah, maybe there are ways in which our culture is sort of inherently isolating and puts all of the stress of sustaining, um, a household on the people who are considered to be a part of that household 
whether it's just you, whether it's you and a partner, whether it's you and a partner and your kids. And that's not, Mm -hmm. that's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it has been really, and as someone who I've always been an introvert, I've loved spending time at home. I always joke that like, I would have absolutely thrived during (laughs) this year if I didn't have a baby (laughs) Um, (laughs) instead of like, um, like with, with being whittled away into a husk of myself um, because I love being at home and not having to worry about other people. But I think that this year and the context that I'm in has really made me realize that having the space in my life to do the kind of work that community building entails, to do the work, to like make friendships, to get involved in your community, to get to know your neighbors, like those things have never interested me that much, but they are so important. And it, it, I newly want to have a life that makes space for all those things rather than a life where I'm at the office all day and then I'm frantically caring for a child. And then I'm like watching Netflix on the couch with my husband, you know, a, a very isolated life. And I think that just because I'm not Gen Z doesn't mean that I can't have that desire, <laughs> have that desire and have like a, a growing awareness that like we need an alternative. Um, and like the, I think the nap dress is like a funny thing here because it is this signal of, of a certain class. Of, it's a racial signal. It's all these things it's also capitalistic, right? Like it's a brand, it's a very successful brand. I think you could say that about Christy Dawn as well. And some of these other uh, brands that Anne Helen mentions. Absolutely. And there, there is something different, I think, about, <laughs> about following a brand and buying their products than, you know, engaging with a trend through like DIY or through, you know, community purchasing from local uh, artisans and that sort of thing. Um, And that's something I've definitely been thinking more about since reading this is just like how much of what I'm doing is, is really a change and how much is following a new, a new brand and a new way of just consuming. And that's, I, that's why I'm trying not to buy any clothes this month. Cause I do think that I've gotten like, addicted to filling the void through consumption and Uh-oh. that's the opposite Same of what here. I want my life to be it's the, it's, it's something yeah, that there's... I used to not worry about at all and now I very much worry that my life I... is just consumption yeah <laughs> I think that like there's always room for us to critique our own relationships with with consumption and I think we are all constantly being like marketed to and again that is like worthy of critique and of thoughtfulness around um but I don't think that's unique mm-hmm. to the nap dress. And that's oh, why I find not. this like hyper focus on it to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's been just such a phenomenon. I totally understand why this piece happened. True. And I'm yeah, so yeah. glad she did it. I learned so much from it. But I, yeah, I just keep wanting to like embroider on it. I keep wanting to be like, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And I think that's because it was so rich. And also because I am obsessed with the question of fashion, because it was 
something that changed so profoundly over the course of my life. Like when I was a teenager, I was not into fashion. I didn't really know how to dress myself. It made me uncomfortable. And in my twenties, I kind of got into it and learned to become comfortable with it and to feel like it was a way of expressing myself or feeling good about myself instead of just like something I was always doing wrong. And then you get pregnant, that changes again. Then you're a new mom, none of your old clothes fit anymore. It's just like, it's been this, this constant concern and constantly changing along with the context of my life. And so then to like, look at it so closely and critically, it sometimes can be uncomfortable. Um, But sorry, that's just like my angst. Um, I share it, (laughs) (laughs) but I think I just want to like briefly say something else about the idea that these dresses are like hearkening back to the domestic in a way that is like inward looking and narcissistic. And I, I see this uh, as being a commentary on her part of the mommy and me trend to a large extent. I have a son, so like, I'm not dressing him in nap dresses. Like, I don't think I would if I had a daughter either, um, to be honest. And, you know, if you have a son and you dress him in nap dresses, I fully support that. But um, the reality is that it's expensive to buy a tiny nap dress and babies are messy and they grow quickly. And so it's, I think it's even more so than an adult garment is such a marker of class that you could afford to spend like $75 on a tiny, I mean, the people I know most who like bought the tiny nap dress are my non child having friends who like wanted to buy a nice gift for like the babies in their lives. Oh, like that's why I've thought about buying them because I have Mm -hmm. friends and I'm like, you would never buy your kid this because yeah, it's totally impractical, but like a one-off purchase for me is fine. It's funny. I think that this Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just projecting this too far, but I feel like this might also be another indicator of that sort of divide between parents and, and non, because when we got gifts, clothing gifts for, for our son from parents, they were mostly, honestly, just like five packs of onesies. And I think non-parents are much more like a gift should be special, right? Like a gift, I'm not going to like give them 10 white you know, pullover onesies, I'm going to give them a really nice garment that seems gift worthy. And that makes so much sense. I have done the same thing, but I do think that like, then you, when you have kids, you're sort of like, oh, well, I'm, what am I like? They can wear this like once. And it's not actually like adding a great deal of value to my life, even though it's super cute, but like at the same time, I would really enjoy it. You know, it's like, it's, but I, I guess what I'm saying is more that like my first thought now would be to give something that seemed more practical and less yeah. valuable. Um, though I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll get my, my friend's daughter an actress. You've really got me thinking. Um, this is what happens when I do my thinking. Live. You're like, and like, now yes, I will no, yes. buy more shit. No, yeah. I've decided to buy the thing. Um, yeah, no, I think that the gifting, gifting culture drives so many consumer things. Like what are things that you think your friend would like rather than what would you get for yourself? I've been thinking about this with baby books as well. Um, but the mommy and me thing, 
I don't really relate to for that reason. Emma, you did make a beautiful tie-dye onesie set for me and Max, and I did really enjoy that. I did. That was my DIY phase of (laughs) of quarantine is I made Claire a bodysuit tie-dye and and Max a matching little onesie. (laughs) It was absolutely fabulous, and I loved them. And I think that, like, there's just something that maybe it feels like it's signaling too much class uh, yeah. status to me like the thought of dressing him in like a precious little like formal <laughs> outfit and then I'm in a matching one just I'm like that's not the kind You're of like, person I want to signal far. that yeah. I am and so it really is still rooted in signaling <laughs> to a certain extent um but anyway what I was uh, what I was initially coming back to I think is that these dresses are like super designed for the domestic sphere that like you you don't need to maybe have your wallet with you in them. You're just sort of wafting around the kitchen or the playroom in them, especially the sheer ones. Like I'm not going to wear the white one (laughs) to the grocery store, but I think that for people like us, moms and non-moms of a certain class, this year was domestic. And I think that these dresses are appropriate for that while still actually signaling a desire to be in community which is I'm still dressing myself to be seen on a certain level. I'm still participating in a trend. I'm part of a broader culture. I'm both remembering a time that I maybe nostalgically think of inaccurately or not as being a time when community was valued. And I'm also signaling to the world that I want to be regarded by them. And I think those are both community-minded impulses. I think that that's such a perfect conclusion, Claire. And, and as always said, said just so beautifully and eloquently. And I think that I really, really relate to, to all of this. And I, I look, I just, I remain a nap dress enthusiast and maybe I'm just Uh trying to justify my (laughs) own outsized spending, which is, it's hard to untangle our own, just like capitalistic desires from these, these deeper impulses. Um, yeah, it's hard, but you know, I, I think that they're both true in a way. Like I think so yeah. many of her critiques are, are, are accurate. accurate. So many of the histo- so much of the historical context is really important and convincing at the same time. I do think that there is value for women and having garments that they feel are beautiful that are appropriate for a body that changes over time that you know are appropriate for women who don't have children and women who are having children and women who have children and that you don't have to like sculpt your body to wear I do think there's value in that too and so like as much as I take all of her critiques on board, I also at the end of it was like, I feel like she's being too condemnatory of this. And so, oh, something else I wanted to mention before we finish is just that I, I made the mistake of, of reading some of the responses to her tweet mm-hmm. of this piece. And I found it really interesting that the majority of comments were from women, many of whom seem to occupy a, a similar sort of social and racial, you know, class. Um, mm-hmm. And they were all like very smug about not 
buying into this trend in a way that felt like almost unproductive, like in this way of like, well, I'm signaling that I would never do something so like gauche. I would never like something so overtly feminine. I would never dress my child like me because I'm not that disgusting kind of mother and the there was like a kind of woman yeah there was like a condescension there and it reminded me again of like the impulse that we have as as women where we're sort of like left out of certain spheres and limited in certain ways and then left to sort of fight with each other um for the scraps and left to yeah. condemn each other in order to signal that we've like responded to these shitty conditions in the right way Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so true. There is definitely a thread that either was in this piece or that was elicited from people who read it that was, I think, just contemptuous of feminine coded things and contemptuous of women who like those things. And I don't think that that is ultimately productive for women. And I I sense that also in the way that I sometimes feel like a bad feminist for having a child um, or for having a spouse, (laughs) Um, but especially for having a child that, you know, that because women have been forced into these roles and pushed into these roles, confined to the home, pressured to have children, told that they don't have value if they don't have children, that then the reaction is, well, then the good and progressive way to live is to not conform to that at all costs and to simply not wear ruffles because women were told they had to wear ruffles to be good women. And so I simply won't. And then we end up back in this Ouroboros of like denigrating feminine coded things Um, as a marker of like supporting women. And, uh, you know, that I, I don't think is a productive response. Even though it can feel satisfying to be like, I'm the rebel, I'm the good one. I've, I've been there being like, well, I didn't have that response. So I'm, it's an understandable human reaction. Um, but I think it ultimately all signals the same thing in that, like, we are all limited by these gender-based expectations. We are all confined by them and being released from those things would allow us to like enjoy what we enjoy with a greater freedom and a greater pleasure. Um, Mm. And ultimately like that should, the goal should be like liberation for everyone. Right. Like I don't want Laura Ashley to be going around like convincing every woman to wear matching ruffle dresses with their daughters. (laughs) by all means, like, I don't want like some sort of natalist agenda to like seize holds to an even greater extent than you could say it already has of our contemporary culture. But I also don't think that it's productive to be like, well, we should make sure that people feel that pregnancy is kind of gross and like not desirable and icky and moms are boring and stuff that's for them. Like, the rest of the world shouldn't have to worry about or pay attention to because it's stupid. You know, there should be room for, for women to live lives that have all different kinds of components to them. And they're all valued and they're all seen as what they are, which is like an important part of making the world. Like, I don't think that we can have the world without child, child child-free women. I don't think we can have the world without children. You know, these are all 
important roles. And I don't understand why support for one must then be translated into, you know, suppression of the other. I, I, I don't know why it's so hard, but it is. Yeah, again, no, no, it, it, it is. And again, this all goes back to the fact that as women, we are like limited as a sort of as a class, as a, a gender category and, um, you know, having an expansion of what fashion can be of what, you know, different life paths, the, you know, government policy and like the, the state supports is helpful to everyone, like expanding what we see as acceptable and good will benefit everyone. And ultimately, you know, uh, we're, we're taking a thing, a, a product like the nap dress and going very far with it. But like, I think that it's, it's important, um, to unpack things like this because we are all signaling our values all the time. Um, and we are all sort of participating, um, Mm -hmm. in this culture in different ways and like perhaps unintentionally causing harm in different ways. And so I think it's, it's just, it's interesting and it's good and it's valuable to have these conversations and to elucidate different, um, parts of, of these conversations and like everyone can sort of be correct. (laughs) Like everyone's in a, in right. Way. Everyone's That's right. where we're ending it. Just, and except to Laura Ashley, she sounds Laura like she Ashley. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that was interesting to me just about the way that Anne Helen deals with the way that brands like Christy Dawn are very conscientiously inclusive and socially justice minded is to basically be like, well, yeah, but it's doing the same aesthetic signaling. And, you know, there's an element of truth to the truth to that. But I also think that there's an element of what does it mean to layer new kinds of social context onto this fashion? What does it mean to uh, expand it to, to new groups of people or to new, you know, to new, to say like, these are garments that are not just for white women that are not just for, um, thin women. married moms, thin yeah. women that are, that are not just for women that are not just for even like f- female identified people. And, and, you know, that, that there, when we make it more expansive, when, when we try conscientiously to expand the, the world of, of who can wear these kinds of styles and, and what it means when they do, like, does that not, have value does that not shift the 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 burden of meaning that is like weighted onto these garments over time and I think that that is important and that that is valuable and it doesn't mean the critique stops there you know it doesn't mean like oh well we fixed the branding so therefore like we don't need to talk about (laughs) anything else of course but I I also don't think it's like somehow an insidious you know, papering over the, the deeper structural problems to say, like, you know, if we exist in a world full of brands, there is still value in those brands, um, trying to reckon with the inequalities that they perhaps cause or signal or like embolden. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that, that has its 
its value. It's not the be all end all, but I still think it has value. Yeah, because I think we have to go much further than, you know, where we were before the nap dress in terms of fashion. We have to go think more expansively and think more about what can be like recuperated from past eras of fashion and what can be envisioned for the future to come up with with fashion that is accommodating to more people's bodies that is that celebrates more people's like creative impulses that is less restrictive in in all sorts of ways and I don't think that it's good enough to be like oh well this style is broken and there's nothing to be done goodbye I feel like we have to think more about what can be salvaged and and what we can make in the future with all of that I agree is this about motherhood anymore I don't know who can even say we always go on a million tangents but I think (laughs) that this is probably a perfect place for us to wrap up I think we've gotten into a lot of really interesting tangly threads and Claire I so look forward to continuing to have this larger conversation and go in so many directions with it Um, It gets both of us very like fired up and I have so many thoughts and it's been just a great experience and really clarifying for me to sort of talk through these things. So thank you for being in community with me. Oh, anytime. Like it's been a real joy and privilege and thanks so much to all of you for listening. We really, really appreciate your support. And of course, continue to send us your thoughts, leave comments. We know that this was not like, addressing any of the serious topics that we, uh, that we have been asked to address, but they are definitely on the agenda and we're ex- always excited to hear from, from you all about what you think. Yeah. And so of course you can find us, um, on Instagram at Claire and Emma pod. You can find our other podcast, love to see it with Emma and Claire, wherever you listen to podcasts, but specifically on Stitcher and Apple podcast and Spotify. Um, and you can subscribe to our Substack, which I guess all of you already are, uh, but at claireandemma.substack.com. And please, please forward this along to all of your friends. It really is quite literally paying our bills right now. So we are are just beyond grateful and honored that all of you have, have um, become subscribers. Yeah, what she said. We will be back soon with more about mom life, non-mom life, and other topics.